Thanks to Airbnb for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. Go to airbnb.com slash fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, May 28th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's Consumer Goods Show, we're going to dig into a business a bit better known north of the border. We'll take a look at the latest quarters for home improvement giants, Lowe's and Home Depot. But we begin this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. As you may remember, we've recently brought four new analysts onto our investing team here at The Motley Fool, and we wanted to take the opportunity here on Industry Focus and Between Two Fools to introduce you to them. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Thomas King. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, Tom, first things first, tell us who you are and tell us what got you here to The Motley Fool. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me on the show. So, my name is Thomas King. Uh, you can probably hear from my accent that I'm not from around here. No. <laughs> so I'm originally a South African. I moved to the United States in uh, July last year. Um, I wasn't always a uh, financial analyst. I was actually an environmental scientist before this. But um, I got very interested in finance and particularly in analyzing companies and economics. And so I got some the education that I needed, and um, came over to the states and uh, looked around at at who would be wonderful to work for. And fortunately, I found the Motley Fool, and the Motley Fool found me, and that's how I got to be here. Since. You know, I remember talking with you. I think right after you got, and we, and just so the listeners know, I was part of the interview process, watching you go through that process and meeting you and learning about you. And shortly after we hired you, you know, you said something to me that really struck me because I felt the same way when I got hired too. You said, "I think I found my tribe." Yeah, and I, I thought, yeah. you know what? I know what you mean. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. That was yeah. that was really good to hear. <laughs> um, oh, it's a very interesting educational background you have, uh, and and I, you know, I think that's that gives you, I think, a lot of good perspective when it comes to investing. I think one of the one of the more enjoyable things about our job, especially when you're new like you are, is figuring out what kind of investor. you you are. Yeah. And I you know, I came here and I wasn't exactly sure either, but what kind of investor are you? I mean, are you do you consider yourself a value guy or a growth guy? Are you kind of in between or something else entirely? Yeah, I would describe myself as a as a value guy. I'm in the value field. Uh, that's where I was kind of brought up where my first introductions to investing were were in value investing. Um so yeah, that is my that is my pedigree. Um I I think it, it it's the one it's the it's the style of investing also which makes the most sense, um, you know. But I have learned since I've been here, you got to be open minded. Yeah. Um, and uh, y- yeah, you can't. Y- yeah, you got to be open minded. Um, per, I, it, it comes sort of also down to your sort of personality as well. Like, sure. I'm a bit of a doubting Thomas, so <laughs> I like to. I like to see something before I'll believe it yeah. to some extent. I mean, yeah. So it's, it's got to be, there's got to be evidence. There's got to be a reasonable basis. You've got to weigh up your probabilities. I don't try to go into hopes and dreams too much. Although you have to be, it does, it is good to be an optimist in this business, but you've also got to be a realist. So, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a good mix there. I think, um, 
you know, the more I think you meet with David Gardner, for example, who is yeah. our, our resident growth, uh, you know, expert. I don't think he really likes that term, growth investor, but rule breaker. You know, I mean, he goes in there and he looks for those companies with that special sauce, something different, and you can't quite put numbers around it. Maybe in the beginning, yeah. but you know, there's something there. I mean, there is a leap of faith you're taking with virtually every investment we make. But I think that's one of the fun things here uh, is as you go on, you will find I think you develop into a more well-rounded investor with with a lot of different perspectives. It's very very helpful, yeah. um, and I know we'll enjoy watching you develop here. Uh, since you have gotten here, now it hasn't been all that long, right? You've only been working here for a few months, uh, but this is the fool. Every day is an adventure. Yeah. What is something you've learned in regard to investing since you got here that surprised you? Something maybe you weren't expecting? I think what I'd have to say that would be would be the um, just the wide variety of backgrounds and styles here that um, we're not expected to fit into into any kind of box. Or we're motley. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, we have a lot of freedom to um, explore our interests, follow our noses, and see where that leads us. And I think that's a, that's a great thing. I mean, it, it gives people the chance to be innovative and um, to to expand their intellect. Um, and yeah, I think it's great. And it's, it's really a... Yeah, it's a very interesting place to work and to be. Yeah, I've always called it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Montessori school. I am. Yes, I, yeah. So I, I went to Montessori school growing up, and I've always likened this place to a Montessori school for adults. <laughs> you can come in here and you just do right. You have yeah. that opportunity to come in and just do something, um, it, and it, it can be different every day. But I think what it leads to is you see this investing team we have here with a lot of different perspectives, a lot of value to offer in a lot of different ways, um, and and so I'm, I'm sure that you'll. See that as time goes on. Um, tell me what what is the best piece of investing advice you've ever gotten? It doesn't have to be from here. It can be something when you were growing up, maybe something your father handed down to you. But what is the best piece of investing advice you've ever gotten? I would have to say um, this has come through from Peter Lynch and from Warren Buffett. It is to see a share that you own as a part ownership in a business. And I realize that people might be like, duh, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> but it is quite easy to forget that fact when you when you see stock prices and you see things blips on a screen. And it's hard to forget that you own part of this business. You employ the CEO and the CFO to do a job for you because you can't be there yourself. If they fail at that job, it becomes your problem. (laughs) They are your employees. And um, it's really important. I think that keeping that in mind is really important to just frame, to keep your perspective correct as you go about the investing process. Um, So, I would say that is the single most important piece of advice I've ever received. I I like that. You know, I've been working, my wife and I work with our girls, helping them learn about money and investing and whatnot. So, they're investors. And that is how we started. They, They essentially started with that mentality of, they're they're an owner. They're a part owner of that business, and so now they realize that anytime we go to Disney World or watch something on TV from Disney, they're like, "Oh yeah, you own a little bit of that company." And you get something from Starbucks, and you're well, you're kind of paying yourself. Yeah, and, yeah. and they appreciate that perspective because you're right. In the day to day, I mean, stock prices go up and go down. I mean, that you can't really make sense of the uh, the madness sometimes. But yep. focusing on that underlying business really is, is what it all boils down to. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, okay, listen. Going away from investing, you've had obviously an interesting life that has led you uh, to 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 work with us here. But tell us something unique or special about you. Something that's happened in your life that people out there should know. So my most interesting story is that I spent nearly a year living in a tent, <laughs> <laughs> not as a Boy Scout or anything. I see. No. Uh, Why? <laughs> no. What I was doing was, after I left school, I worked for a company, uh, we did minerals exploration. Oh. And we, our speciality was getting to remote locations to do, basically to be the first boots on the ground, uh, getting samples as part of a mineral sampling program. So basically that meant where we went... There were there were generally no roads and certainly no civilization, so we lived in tents and <laughs> and I did that for a year and I really enjoyed it and I have a lot of memories and yeah, but it it was an interesting time. I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, I was grew up a Boy Scout and we did you know our fair share of camping, but I I don't think I ever stayed in a tent for quite that long. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine the challenges that you overcame. <laughs> Uh, wow, that is very interesting. Cool, good deal. Um, all right, well, we normally like to wrap these interviews up, and I get book recommendations from the people we're interviewing. But because you, because you're in here as an analyst now, I mean, we're getting people to listen to your advice and your your stock ideas. I want you to give our listeners out there a stock on your radar, a stock that you like today, and why. Okay, so I have. I'm very interested in a business called Texas Instruments. You may probably be most familiar with them as the uh, maker of the calculators. Yep. Um, there are a lot of a lot of attractive features to this business. Uh, I think the management team is very ex- experienced. Um, they set transparent targets for themselves, and uh, they measure themselves against these uh, regularly. So um, that is always good to see. In terms of the economics of the business, it's it's a manufacturer of semiconductors, which are essentially the brains in our electronic devices. They do all the processing, process all the information. Um, so you've got uh, you've got they've got a very strong wind in their sails as as devices become more and more computerized. I mean, we're putting we're putting semiconductors into washing machines these days. <laughs> it's, so, it's scary. Yeah. So they've got they've got a good wind in their sails. Um, they're also a very profitable company. Um, it has amazing returns on equity. So over the last five years, its return on equity has varied between 26.6% and 57.7%. Wow. All right. And over the same period, their amount of debt as a proportion of their total capital has varied between 25.6% and 36%. So... What that says is that TI is achieving these returns on equity without significant leverage. That's always encouraging. Yep. All right. And in the last financial year, it had a free cash flow margin of 38%, with free cash flow calculated as cash from operations minus capital expenditures. So for every dollar this business earns, the shareholders could happily take out 38 cents without impairing the competitive position of the business. All right. And uh, this is also not just a once-off blip um, in its performance. It, this, this free cash flow margin has uh, grown from 28% five years ago to its present level. And another nice thing about it is you can buy this business at currently for about 15 times free cash flow. So a relative bargain in a market where everything looks 
pretty darn expensive today. Correct. All right. Well, yeah. great stuff. Good deal, yeah. Tom. Well, I appreciate that. I'm sure our listeners enjoyed getting to know you, and uh, I'm sure they'll be hearing a lot, uh, a lot from you in the, in the near future. Thanks for coming by. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Airbnb for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. If you're looking for some extra income, then hosting on Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. That's because it's free to list your home, and Airbnb offers a $1 million host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. Host when you want, how you want. It's all up to you. Do you like money? Of course you do. That's why you're listening to the show. With Airbnb, you can make money while you travel. Why leave your home empty during vacations? Instead, earn money while you're away, so your trip expenses get covered. And hey, if those expenses are already covered, well, then you're in luck, because there are many different ways to utilize the extra income from hosting on Airbnb, like paying bills, subsidizing home improvements, or you can even save up for retirement. And remember, you're the boss and always in control while hosting on Airbnb. Determine home availability dates, prices, house rules, guest interactions, all your decisions. Go to airbnb.com fool to start hosting, and you'll receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by July 31st. That's airbnb.com fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. And joining me in the studio now, via the magic of technology, it's Mr. Asit Sharma. Asit, how's everything going? Fantastic, Jason. Um, just got back from a trip to Canada last week. Oh. My wife and niece got married, yeah. And I loved it because it was a big Indian wedding, so I got to eat a lot of delicious food, <laughs> um, dance the Bhangra dance, um, see some old friends, and I also got to look at lots of fascinating Canadian businesses on the ground while I was there. Well, I was wondering what the impetus was for this uh, kicking the tires on Canadian Tire this <laughs> week. Now I get it. Um, I mean, hey, let's jump right in here because uh, it's not a business I was very familiar with before you had mentioned it, uh, but I had a chance to, to give it a look over the weekend. And uh, there are some interesting points of this business here that I think are willing uh, are, are worth expounding on. And, and so I'm going to throw it over to you immediately here. Just to ask you, what is it about Canadian Tire uh, that has your interest today? First off, the name is deceptive. It's not really a tire company. Canadian Tire started out as a tire business in 1922. They're coming up on their 100-year anniversary in 2022. But it is a widespread Canadian retailer which sells automotive, uh, tools and hardware, home essentials, sports and recreation, and outdoor living products all under one roof. Um, Some locations also have grocery and apparel. If you think about big box stores here in the U.S., uh, maybe a little bit of Walmart, a little bit of Sam's, a little bit of Home Depot, a little bit of Dick's Sporting Goods, you'll, and maybe a little bit of TJ Maxx, you'll start <laughs> to get the flavor of a Canadian tire store. It's a uniquely Canadian concept. And why I'm interested in it is we just don't spend enough time looking at those businesses north of the border. Uh, it's a smaller market, and U.S. businesses tend to go into Canada and expand. So we hear about Canada all the time. Folks read um, financial reports. You know that your companies, uh, consumer goods companies you're investing in, are going into Canada. But what about these local companies? 
I'm going to run down uh, the makeup of this big retailer for you and maybe hit a couple financial snapshots and hand it back to you, Jason, for some comments. But listeners, picture this. The company has roughly 500 Canadian Tire flagship stores, that big BMS store, big box store I just described. They also own uh, gas station chains. The biggest is called Petroleum. It's got nearly three stations and convenience stores combined. They have an apparel and footwear company called Marks, which has nearly 400 stores nationwide in Canada. It's got Sport Check, which is a sporting goods and activewear retailer, and Pro Hockey Life. You know, hockey is extremely <laughs> important to the lifestyle in Canada. Yep. So they have multiple hockey-based businesses. It's big business in Canada. Also, the company acquired a Norwegian sportswear and workwear company called Heli Hansen last year for about $985 million Canadian dollars, which is in the $800 million U.S. range. Um, they also have a consumer brand division, which expands multiple private label brands. The one that listeners will be familiar with is Mastercraft, the tool company. And we often see Mastercraft tools uh, here south of the border. It finally has a finance segment to um, offer royalty credit cards and also a REIT segment, a real estate investment trust, which invests in properties, not just its own, but income-producing properties across Canada. Just to give you a idea of how big this company is. Last year, it had revenues of 14 billion Canadian. That's about 10.6 billion U.S. And it experienced 6% year-over-year revenue growth. Um, and it also has pretty solid margins. Gross margins were 33.5% last year. Operating margin was 9.2%. And it booked net income of around 700 million Canadian. That's about 520 million U.S. Lastly, it's got a fairly solid balance sheet. It's got a debt-to-equity ratio of about 0.38. They're not very highly levered, and that's after taking on this sort of big acquisition of Heli Hansen last year. So that's an overview of this really sprawling Canadian uh, company, which considers a lot of our well-known big box retailers its primary competition. Uh, what do you think about this company, Jason? Now you know you've had a chance to look at it over the last few days. Yeah, you know, I, I took a look at it, and I mean, the first thing that struck me was that the it, it does it does seem like they've hit a little bit of a maybe a little bit of a wall on on top line growth there but that that could be for a number of reasons i guess when it comes to retailers though generally you have, you have to at least ask yourself the question how much can they grow from where they are today i think that the one hang up i have generally speaking when it comes to retail type plays that are Branded to the market in which they serve, and in this case, you know Canadian Tire, obviously, sort of you know hitching its brand to its Canadian identity, and and not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but I do wonder how much that how how much that brand resonates outside of of its home market opportunities. So I think that would be the that would be the big question for me is in in a world where we've got a lot of choices as consumers. Um, if we're looking at Canadian Tire and trying to figure out where the growth might be coming from, um, other than acquisitions, I mean, how how much is this company going to be able to grow beyond its home market, um, and and how much growth do you think is left there in its home market? Do you have any thoughts where that's concerned? Sure, and I think those are really good points. In fact, historically, the company has had two forays into the U.S., which weren't very successful. It tried to come in a big way in the tool uh, segment, 
is a great example and just could not make it and turn its focus back to Canada. And I think that Canadian Tire's answer to that question is this expansion into alternate business lines, very lucrative consumer finance segment, um, and also this REIT, which is investing in properties, as I said before, just its own. So one of the strategies the company is employing is this growth through acquisition, which still begs your question, Jason. You know, if not through acquisition, how will the company keep expanding? The primary vehicle that it's used to do this really since the 1960s, 1958 is, is the core years, they have developed a loyalty program, which is really popular in their market. It's called CTM, or Canadian Tire Money. And this, funnily enough, is actual paper money, uh, looks like monopoly money, but actually close to Canadian banknotes, which you get every time you make a purchase. I think it's 0.4% of your total purchase. You get paper money that you can then use um, at a subsequent visit to the stores. And it's so popular in Canada that a lot of mom-and-pop stores will accept Canadian Tire money because mom-and-pop are uh, shoppers at Canadian <laughs> Tire. They have uh, really updated this whole system in the last two years, and now it's a card-based system very similar to what we see in the U.S. Um, it's basically credit cards, loyalty cards, and they've upped the rewards. They still have that paper money, which is so popular in Canada. But now this program, which many big box retailers in the States have had for 10 to 15 years based on that consumer finance model, they're still uh, touch skimming the surface of that. And I see some growth in this segment. It's a more profitable segment. And um, I also see that we, we usually look at one side of, of the equation, which is how will a company grow? But an advantage of this company is that it's very hard to compete against. So the company, because it sells so many different products under one roof and owns a lot of smaller brands, uh, including uh, brands, it considers a wide range of U.S. retailers as its competition. So there's no one direct competitor. In fact, their annual report named Walmart, Costco, Home Depot, Cabela's, Bass Pro Shops, Lowe's, and Nordstrom as primary competition. And why I think this is important, about uh, five years ago, Target tried to enter the Canadian market in a big way, and they bumped up against this company. This was one of the reasons that Target actually exited Canada in 2015. And in fact, Canadian Tire took over about 12 Target locations. The one thing I like about it is it's sort of insulation against encroaching competition. But as far as growth is concerned, they have this two-pronged strategy. They are going to acquire, and they are going to try to grow the loyalty of their customers. And maybe just a last interesting stat on the loyalty program, they count 12 million customers in their loyalty program spread across all their brands. Now, the population of Canada is only 37 million. So essentially almost um, a quarter of Canadians are enrolled in this uh, program under one brand or another. So wow. that's another very uh, interesting competitive advantage the company has. Yeah, I mean, it's a small market, but it sounds like they maintain a very dominant presence. In it. And, um, I mean, you know, having your own currency, I mean, I guess there's some puts and takes with that. But, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, Jimboree back in the day when Jimboree was still a publicly right. traded company. And, 
they had those things called gym bucks, which, you know, gymboree I was always a big fan of because it made it easy for idiots like me to buy clothes for their daughters. Um, right. and, and unfortunately, gymboree was taken private, and then private equity just pretty much ruined the company. But I, I will say gym bucks were smart in that they just encouraged that repeat uh, business. And, and certainly, I could see where uh, Canadian Tire's currency would do the same. So, uh, hey, Osset, great look at Canadian Tire and definitely a company worth getting on one's watch list. Uh, let's take a quick look here at the quarter in home improvement. Two companies you and I follow uh, pretty closely here Home Depot and Lowe's. Seems like it was a bit of a tale of two cities, so to speak. Uh, Home Depot with a good quarter, rather tepid market reaction. Lowe's, not a really, not a bad quarter, but it wasn't good enough. And the guidance was a little concerning. And the market's really been selling the stock since then. Um, What stood out to you between the two um, as as far as the disparity here? You know, um, Jason, these two companies were. Uh, one of the first two companies that I covered with you um, several podcasts ago. And I remember us talking about Home Depot just being in a great position to optimize a good business and Lowe's being in a turnaround phase. And yes, the guidance was weak from Lowe's. The stock is down about 16% since reporting last week. What stood out to me is that the market investors were expecting higher earnings now, Lowe's had sales of $17.7 billion, so that was a growth rate of 2.2%. And comps, comparable sales, looked great. They were up 3.5%. But the company's uh, diluted earnings per share of $1.31, um, plus that outlook that you talked about, really unnerved investors. Investors feel like with this top-line growth, the company by now should be churning out more bottom-line profits. But it's not easy to turn around a business which has subpar systems. And this is something that CEO Marvin Ellison, uh, since he came on board, has preached that the company has outmoded processes for um, tracking inventory, for pricing, for keeping up with cost escalations. Um, Even sales associates don't have great technology in terms of mobile devices they can use, which they're, they're currently upgrading. So what you're seeing is it's not so easy to turn spaghetti into higher margins. And I think that many people are probably perhaps missing that this is going to be a several quarter exercise for Lowe's still. Uh, I'll give you one example. In merchandising, um, the company has had a huge turnover. I think they have replaced two out of three top executives in the last several quarters. And their merchandising systems, the ones that they keep track of that in order to be able to, in real time, move pricing when their cost escalates, those still aren't up to par. And this quarter, uh, CEO Ellison said that, look, we had costs go up on us from raw materials increasing, but our systems could not communicate quickly enough to the floor to adjust pricing. It's part of the reason why our margins went down. So this is not a great uh situation, but it's a good problem to have. I'd like to point out that being cognizant of the core issue in an organization is the first step towards getting better. And and I personally think, hey, Home Depot is probably still the better buy, but don't ignore Lowe's. Uh, It's not necessarily on a long downhill slope. This is just the tough work of of getting your ship back in order. What are your thoughts on the, the two quarters? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no question that um, Marvin Ellison has a multi-year project on his hands there. It's, it's not going to be an easy turnaround, and I think he's doing the things that need to be done. It's never easy when you're having to do that in the face of a competitor that continues to perform well. And I mean, I think with Home Depot, I mean, clearly they're separating themselves. When you look at things like big ticket comp sales, and those are those sales that are over $1,000, that was up 4% for the quarter. But I think when you look at where Home Depot is really shining, it's with the pro customer. And that pro customer now represents close to uh, half of overall revenue. They're building a very robust rentals business uh, from that as well. And uh, just to show you some some of the math behind that, I mean, several years ago, they may have rented tools to one out of 10 um, or so of their professional customers. Now, that number's closer to one in four. So, building a robust rentals business, and that certainly results in uh, those those professional contractors buying more stuff from your stores as they come and rent those tools that they need to use on an ongoing basis. So, uh, I mean, you can see where Home Depot is really executing. You can see where, where Lowe's really needs uh, to get some work done. But to your point, it, you know, it's not like Lowe's has been a bad investment. I mean, over the last five years, the stocks have essentially tracked one another. You stretch that out to 10 years, Home Depot separates itself a little bit. But again, it's not like Lowe's has been a bad investment. So, uh, assuming that uh, Marvin Ellison is on the right path here, I think there are reasons at least to be hopeful. Uh, but if you're looking for the no brainer in the space, yeah, my, my, my money goes to Home Depot 10 times out of 10. Uh, listen, Austin, I hate to cut it short here, but we do have to go this week. I appreciate you calling in and talking as always. Uh, you take it easy there in North Carolina, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that trip you had up there, that Indian wedding, because man, I love uh, some good Indian food, and I'm trying to learn how to cook some more of it myself. Yeah, we'll, we'll just have to grab a meal together pretty soon. All right, look forward to it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Asit Sharma, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.